Hi, and welcome to the Willowridge Church Weekly Podcast. This is where you can find audio for our current and past sermons. We hope that you enjoy this week's installment, and be sure to check back next week to hear the latest message. Thanks for listening. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is where we're going to be this morning. As you turn there, you heard about our marriage conference that we're going to be doing at the end of the month. We're excited about that here. Uh, I'm excited for Aaron and I to have an opportunity to go through that along with you guys. Uh, Marriage conferences have played a role and a piece in our marriage uh, from the very beginning. And and what what we're excited about for this one is a lot of times marriage conference or marriage retreats, you got to go away. And so what we've decided to do is how can we bring that here to to Willow Ridge Church and, and have that amongst our body, our congregation. And so the last weekend, that Friday night and Saturday morning, we'll be gathering together as married couples to to, to hear wonderful teaching that's going to be provided to us through Right Now Media, and then have the opportunity to discuss and work through some of those. And so we want all of you who are married, or maybe you're dating, or maybe you're engaged, maybe you're having conversations, whatever that is, going to be a wonderful time for us to continue to build on God's expectation of marriage for us. And so we'll be selling tickets all the way through the end of the month, and so you can, or next month, and so you can, we're still in February, I think, right? Um, and so we'll be selling tickets back here, and would love for you to, to join us and go ahead and purchase some tickets. Have had people ask, can, can uh, couples that don't go to our church, maybe they go to another church, or they don't go to church at all, can they be a part of this with us? And absolutely. And so if you've got someone that you want to invite, that you want to bring with you, we'd love for them to be a part of this. Um, before we get into our, our message this morning, um, as you guys, I'm sure, are, are all aware from, from watching the news and what's taking place, I just wanted to kind of take a moment and, and speak to the war and, and the conflict going on in Ukraine um, and what we're, sorry, what we're going to be doing and, and how we're responding as a church. Uh, first off, as you leave, I shared this on social media this week. Um, our, our Send Relief team, a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which does a lot of things but, but really prides themselves on being the first on ground in, in areas of, of natural disaster, destructions, war, famine, all those have put together prior to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, uh, this prayer guide, and we've printed uh, some copies off, and they're also at this blue table as you leave. And um, if, if you follow me, on, on, if we're friends on Facebook, and I hope we are, you can print it there, um, and, and we'll make this available through our, our church's uh, social media as well. And so we'd love for you to be able to pray through. Um, wonderful God, 10 ways that we can be praying for the people of the Ukraine and, and what's happening and what's taking place there. Um, as far as just some, some thoughts and, and, uh, on this situation, um, Number one, we're, we're discussing and, and praying through as church leadership uh, how we can respond and how we can help, all right? There's a humanitarian crisis. There's going to be a, a gospel need and a gospel presence uh, for what's going on. Um, refugees, that's been a term um, that I don't know that I heard too often growing up, but it is definitely a term that, that my son and daughter grow up in a world where they hear the term refugee constantly, and, and oftentimes when we hear the word refugee, our brain is, is taking to political matters concerning refugees. And I would just like to maybe say for a moment that I'd like for your brain to maybe go somewhere else when you hear the word refugee. 
always associated with any refugee crisis is also the crisis that comes with human sex trafficking. All right? As people flee, there are men and women who want to rally around and support and love and share. And you see that happen. The refugee crisis creates a wonderful opportunity for the church to step in to help men and women who are broken and hurting. But it also raises to the top in many instances some of the lowest of the lows of humanity in this world. And sex trafficking will be prevalent in these areas. I mean, if you just think about what's happening right now, and this is not a political statement, it's a statement of fact, women and children are allowed to flee and leave the Ukraine. And what is happening as a result of that is the men stay behind and it makes them even more vulnerable to those who seek to take advantage for their own sexual desires, gratifications, or even monetary means. And so as you pray through everything that's going on, I pray that that would be on the forefront of your mind. I want to tell you the work of the Lord that is being done as I've already had one, one of our church members reach out to me already who has some connections in surrounding countries around the Ukraine who's working with gospel-minded brothers and sisters in Christ to help these women and children find a safe harbor. But I also had a friend of mine who's a pastor in the upstate who called and just said, man, I don't know if you have any connections, but, but I do as he's done missions work in Moldova and in other areas around there as well. And so uh, we're just praying through what, what God would have for us as a church. And we don't know what that is yet, but I do know that what God will be calling us to, especially during the season of time, right? We are to be people of prayer. We are to pray without ceasing, but so much rides on what is happening and what is taking place in this right now. And so I want to challenge you to join me, not only as we pray for, for the people of the Ukraine, but also people of Russia. There's believers right now in Russia who are facing persecution as they stand up for what they believe to be right in the sense of the gospel, even if it goes against what their government says. And to ask that we pray for them as well. And so what I'd like to do, and I know this is a little different than how we normally do things, but we're just going to take some moments of silence where we can just gather together as a church and pray. And then I'll close this up and then we'll get started on our message, all right? So let's all just bow our heads, close our eyes, and go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning with heavy hearts. Lord, as the people of God who turn on the TV and find death and destruction, 
Lord, it just hits us at our core. Lord, I pray for the people of the Ukraine this morning. Woke up again to air raids, sounds of rockets and bullets. Or just lift them up to you in their fear and in their uncertainty. Lord, I pray for the leaders, not just the leaders of the Ukraine, Lord, but the leaders of all the nations, Lord, involved in this, whether directly or indirectly. Lord, I pray above counsel from military organizations or elected officials, Lord, that they would seek your counsel. Lord, I pray for the salvation of those who are blatantly, obviously lost, separated from you. And that the truth of the gospel would be made known. Lord, I pray for the boldness of believers. Boldness of believers in Russia, boldness of believers in, in the Ukraine, boldness, boldness of believers in surrounding countries. Lord, to stand for the gospel, to seek to serve, to bring in. Lord, I pray for, for us as a church, as we evaluate, Lord, what you would have for us, how would you have for, for us to respond, to, to partner, Lord, what this looks like. Lord, I, I ask that you even remind that you remind all of us, myself included, Lord, that in the, in the midst of the chaos that is this world to remind us that you are the God who, who is not chaos, but you are in control when, Lord, you're on your throne. And, Lord, may we rest in that. Lord, and in this situation and everything, may your will be done. Lord, for the families of our church that have sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives that serve in the armed forces and don't know what today or tomorrow may hold or may look like, Lord, I pray that you'd give them peace. Lord, to all the soldiers who are involved, I pray that you'd give them protection. Lord, for the church in the Ukraine, as we, just, as we just sang, above all, may the light of Jesus shine through. And may as a result of this terrible season that we find ourselves in, may men and women and children come to know you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to go ahead and begin... Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 1. Paul writes as he continues in his address to the church at, the, at Corinth. 
dealing with them and some of the problems that they're facing, problems that, problems that are detrimental to the unity that Paul would have for them and the understanding of the gospel and the right application of that in their life as, as individuals, as a family, and as a family of God. And so Paul writes in chapter 7, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, now concerning about um, I'm sorry, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what I want us to look at this morning and try to understand is the problem that Paul is addressing here. And as we try to understand the problem, it'll help us uh, be able to unfold and unpack and apply the proper context of the solution of what Paul has given him. Now, there's a lot of debate as in verse 1. And a lot that, that is happening here. And I want to kind of share with you through, through my study and, and, and as the Holy Spirit teaches this to me, what I feel like is, is happening, is, is taking place here in Corinth and what Paul is particularly addressing here in chapter 7. Now, the Corinthian society was very sexual. I tried to think of how we could compare that in, in U.S. terms, and I'll be honest with you, my, my brain couldn't begin to wrap around a, a specific comparison that lines up fully because of some certain details that we're going to find out about what is happening and what is taking place in Corinth, right? So if you go all the way back to like middle school and high school, right, we learned about Greek gods and goddesses and, and Roman gods and goddesses and begin to understand. Uh, the nature that existed for all of those. And so this was the culture in which we find the Corinthian church. And for these gods and goddesses, they would build temples. And these temples would be in different cities throughout the empire where men and women and children would come to these temples to worship these specific gods and goddesses. Well, in Corinth was a temple that was dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. And if you don't remember from a long time ago about Aphrodite, Aphrodite was the goddess of love, beauty, and sexuality. And that was embraced in Corinth and in the temple. As a part of the practice of worship of Aphrodite, in the temple was temple prostitution, consistently practiced there. Both heterosexual and homosexual practice there in the temple was prevalent there and all throughout the culture. And what we see when we look back into chapter 6 is that Paul felt the need to address that in context for the, to, for, for the church, but he also felt because what was happening in the context of the community. I want you to look back for just a second at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. It should be on, on the page there right beside you, right? And Paul's instructing the people of Christ to be different than the people of the world, to be different than the people of society. And here's how, how he addresses it. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul says there's this defining that we need to understand. Now Paul gives other lists in other letters that he writes as well. So each one of these lists that we see, we come to understand that these lists both oftentimes reflect the society and also more than likely some of the struggles both practically or theologically that are existing in the church. And so Paul says, look, those who practice these, this is who they are. This is what they do. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we looked at this last week, verse 11. He says, and such were some of you. Past tense. And such were some of you. And this is the beauty and the hope of the gospel, of what God does. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. And this is what we talked about last week. And so if, you're, if you missed this, go back, and, go back and listen to this. They cannot inherit the kingdom because of who they are, but you, because of Christ and because of his work, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified is what we see here. And there's some verses we're going to come back and, and look at in just a second, but because this is such a big thing that's happening and taking place, Paul looks and says in verse 18 of chapter 6 to the church, flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In just a minute, we're going to look at the tail end of this verse, but right now I want us to focus in on this four-word strategy that Paul gives Flee. Flee. What do we do when we face sexual morality? We flee. What would Corinth say? Explore. Now, I think there's some close correlations that we can begin to connect with Corinthian society and American society. I heard an author say this a few weeks ago, and, and, and I loved it. He said, God never gave you and I the right to determine what is and what isn't sinful. He sets the standard. And so in this context, he says flee. The Corinthians want to explore. They want to find out. They want to live in that, 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 uh, that hedonism that we talked about last week. Well, what feels good to me? What do I like? And Paul said, no, no, we're not exploring this. We're, we're, we're fleeing this. We're running from this because this will lead us to our destruction. We don't want that. So we, we run, we run, we run. Right? So how does this bring us back to verse 1? Why do we take this detour back into chapter 6? Look back at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Here's what I think is happening. Here, here's what I believe is, is taking place. Society in the Corinthian church, and in large part society here, has a view on sex and sexuality that is far removed from God's standard. And what has happened during the time of Paul and what has happened in many senses here is that this standard of society removed from God's standard has invaded the church in many areas. It's why Paul felt the need to address it in the church. 
We gotta talk about this because we gotta make sure that this is what we are, that this is what we're understanding, that we know God's design and God's purpose for this. And so what I think is happening here in the church, I've labeled the Corinthian pendulum, all right? And here's what I mean by that. Sinful Corinthian society has taken the pendulum and swung it on this side to sexual freedom, sexual liberation, sexual exploration. And the church, in response to that, the Christian church, those who aren't embracing it, have said, well, we're going to swing all the way on to the other side. And they've covered this other view of sex outside of biblical marriage that is wrong, and they've admitted that, but they begin to have a distorted view of sex within the context of marriage. And that sex, even in the context of marriage, is lesser. Is lesser, which isn't God's design at all. So that's what we begin to see. Paul wants to bring them back square into God's understanding of sex, sexuality, and the standard for marriage. Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, in this verse right here, what we're going to see and understand is God's standard, and we're going to unpack that throughout the rest of this message. Paul's doing a couple things here in the words that he uses. Number one, Paul defines the only marriage that is pleasing to God. The only marriage that is pleasing to God. One man with one woman. If you look at the tail end of verse two, each man should, should have, right there, that word have, his own wife, and each woman have her own husband. That word have is always used in connection with marriage. And Paul's gonna explain that. One man, one woman. Not a homosexual relationship. Not a polygamous relationship not an adulterous relationship, not any other relationship. One man, one woman, it's the beauty of God from the garden. Right? But then secondly, Paul begins to lay the groundwork here in verse two for the battle against sexual morality. Right? What I want us to understand, and this is hard for us, this is a difficult thing for many of us to grasp. But sexual desire is given by God to humanity for good. Right? For good. Now, my wife and I, the desire that I have for her, it's good. The desire she has for me, it's hard to believe. Thank you. I appreciate that y'all finally laughed at some point in time with this, all right? It's good. Right? It's, it's, it's what's there. It's what God gives us. It's what God has for us. Now, what happens in, 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 in sin is that sexual desire that turns to lust, that turns to sexual immorality, is not what God has for us. But I, I'll be honest with you. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of our relationship. We talked about this this past week with our kids. The night that I met my soon to be at that point in time, not soon to be, he's 18 months later, the night I met Aaron. We went to the same college, we never met. 
We were set up on a blind date. A blind date at church to watch a Christmas church pageant, right? Like, that is just awkward and uncomfortable. I, I mean, it was great that we met at church, but that's where we were, right? And I'll never forget First Baptist North Augusta, the church that I grew up in. I'm standing at the bottom level, and, and when you enter into the sanctuary area, you actually enter in on the second floor if you come from one of the parking lots. And Erin had parked at that second parking lot, and she was working her way down the stairs. And I remember standing there thinking to myself, I, this is before social media, all right? I know for some of our teenagers and even 20-year-olds, that's hard to believe. I'd never seen her. True blind date. And I'll never forget, black pants, black and white sweater. And I saw her walking down the stairs, and I thought, I don't know if that's her, but I hope that it is. And then she came walking up, and the friend that introduced us introduced us, and then I was, you all find this hard to believe, but I don't know that I spoke for like an hour and a half, two hours, just blown away by your beauty, babe, like that. Yeah. Emma's uncomfortable, Grayson serving in kids' ministry, so he's glad he's over there this morning, all right? Right? But in that, I'm attracted to her. We date. We get engaged. And can I tell you what is going on in the mind of a man who loves the Lord in preparation for his wedding night, looking forward to God's design for sex in my life and in her life and for that moment that we can be together. And that's good. That's what God intended. Removed from lust, removed from immorality, but sexual desire can be used by Satan to tempt people into being sexually immoral. I read this this week and I loved it. Uh, an author said, Satan does not produce sexual desire. It is good and he never produced anything good. His aim is to ruin what God created to be good. And so what Satan does, he says that in this desire of what God gives a man and what God gives a woman and, and, and is meant to be celebrated on their wedding night together, that Satan wants to say and Satan wants to take and break and abuse and twist and turn it into something that it's never been intended to be. And when we think about it, he does that with so many different things in our life. But primarily, this is what we see in marriage and in sex. It's a beautiful picture of God's plan for marriage in, in Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's beauty, so much beauty in this verse. What we see in Genesis 2 is we see the formation of the family, the husband and the wife. We see the design for, God, for, for sex that God gives of the husband and the wife. And, and, and even more beautiful, what we see in the relationship between the husband and the wife is we see two people freed from shame. They're not embarrassed. They're not filled with shame. Why? Because that's not who God is. And we see the, the husband and the wife. And what's going on, why I believe the marriage is so important is because unlike any other picture that we see of relationships, 
different than the relationship I have with my daughter, different than the relationship I have with my son, different than the relationship I have with you, different than the relationship I have with my parents, different than the relationship I have with my friends, different than the relationship I have with my lost friends, that the picture, that the gospel picture that exists in marriage. When, when men and women come together for the beauty and the glory of God in marriage, there's a picture that's being displayed. And we see this evident all throughout the New Testament, primarily in Ephesians chapter 5, where, where God gives marriage a unique purpose. And God gives marriage a unique passion. And if you're married and you do not know this, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, there is a greater good for your marriage than raising great kids. There's a greater good for your marriage than having a wonderful retirement plan and bank account. There's a beautiful picture for your marriage that is found in Scripture, and the purpose of marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. You and I, we are referred to the body of believers make up the church, which Scripture refers to as the bride of Christ. And since we are the bride, Scripture tells us that Jesus is the bridegroom, right? So Aaron and I have this unique calling within our marriage that is unique to every marriage that is found under the lordship of Christ to reflect the gospel in that. That I serve her and that I love her and that I seek her best for her as Christ did for the church, and that she, in response to my leadership in the home, that she, in response to my care for her, that she, in all of those aspects, responds as Christ, as the church responds to Christ, and as church loves Christ. There's the unique design that's there, and every time that we have the opportunity to live that out, both positively and negatively, it reflects on who Jesus is. But there's a greater good for your marriage than anything else, and it's Christ, and it's Christ. And so, so Paul, jump, jump back to 1 Corinthians 6, 15. So Paul connects this with, with sexual morality, and he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or how do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, Two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul talks about the spiritual connection between us and the Lord and the spiritual and physical connection between a husband and a wife within theirs. It's a beautiful design that he's laying out. And so when sexual, sexual immorality invades culture and invades the church of all places, like what in the world are we doing? And when it shows this, and when we see this, and whether we see it at Corinth or we see it at Willow, when we are broken from God's standard of marriage, we are broken from the Lord as well removed for what God desires for us. So look and see how this continues to play out. Look at verse three. Scripture says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What I want us to look at here in these few verses is an understanding of sexual selfishness. All right. What we saw, what we read in Genesis chapter 2, is that in marriage, to become one. This has physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual applications. And, and verse 4 doesn't mean that I tell Aaron what to do and that I have control over her. Verse 4 also doesn't mean that Aaron tells me what to do and that she has control over me. But what it does mean in the context of marriage is that she and I are not two independent beings on this earth doing what pleases me and doing what pleases her. But we are one joined together and unified by Christ. And so what is for her good is for my good. When she hurts, I hurt. When I rejoice, she rejoices. And this is what this begins to see in marriage. And practically speaking, I believe that what this looks like is that in marriage, and maybe this will be for some of us here today, there is not my money, my time, or my agenda. It's ours. On that day, June 19th, 2004, at Matlock Baptist Church with Aaron's dad officiating the service, right? In the commitment of that, it was no longer me, but it was always going to be we. As we go forward to becoming one. Now, this doesn't mean I don't have possessions, I do. It doesn't mean I don't have hobbies, I do. It doesn't mean I don't have money in my wallet, I do less now than I did. But that has nothing to do with Aaron and everything to do with two teenagers, right? I do. What it means is I have these and so does Aaron under the agreement of what we do. Is for the betterment, not just of me, but for our family and our marriage. And the moment any of those things distract me from what we're working toward in that, they need to be removed. They need to be removed within there. There's no room for selfishness in marriage. Lose the my and the I in that. There's no room for selfishness in marriage. But in context for here, what do I mean about sexual selfishness? What was used then is used today. Sex, a gift by God given to a husband and a wife in his design, is never meant to be a leveraging tool or a tool of manipulation. So a couple ways. Number one, stop treating sex like a reward to be won. Right? What do, you, what do I mean by that? All right. Have you ever 
done nice things? Have you ever sought to serve your spouse with an end goal, not to be their betterment, not to be for their kindness, not to be for their good, but in the hopes that as a result of that, that you would get sex. That's selfishness and manipulation, not the way that God designed it. Number two, stop using sex as a punishment. Have you ever thought to yourself, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, they didn't do this, so I won't do that. In both of these instances is an abuse and a misuse of sex in the context of marriage. Both of these are forms of manipulation. Both of these are forms of selfishness, and they were never a part of God's design for marriage. But Paul does say there is a reason to not have sex in marriage. Look back. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's what I want to say about this. Maybe there comes a time in your marriage where a season needs to be placed on an emphasis on spiritual matters that are different than what you've gone through before. And I'm going to give some examples of these in just a second. And Paul says when that happens, it's okay in the context of your marriage to take a break from sex. I would equate it to the call that we have on our life in fasting. Right? God calls us to fast and to fast from food. And I don't like it that he says that, but he says it. All right? And when he says it, it's not that we're fasting so that we can lose weight. It's not that we're fasting so we can tell people about it. It's that we're fasting for a purpose that we could cry out to him, depend on him, focus completely on him, and hear from him. And so Paul says there may become a time and an opportunity in your marriage where you need to address some spiritual things that are going on in the context of your marriage. And so as a result of that, you may need to break from sex for a season. And so some illustrations that I give, maybe there's some big decisions that you need to make. And so you as a couple decide before we make these, it may be a career decision. It may be a decision about a home. It may be a decision about a child. It may be a decision about a relationship. And so the two of you come together and you agree that we're going to come and pray and seek the Lord. This is what we're going to do. Number two, there may come a time of sickness where a spouse is battling, going through a time of poor health, a time of poor sickness, and it's discussed and it is agreed that during this, because of the physical condition of the spouse, that we're going to break, and instead we're going to spend that time in prayer before the Lord. There's a third aspect that I think, unfortunately, is all too often in many marriages, where I think this passage of Scripture applies. And it's when sin and brokenness has invaded the marriage and reconciliation needs to happen. A spouse has hurt a spouse. And in that, reconciliation 
needs to be in place. There's a spouse who feels abused. There's a spouse who feels taken advantage of. There's a spouse that's hurt. And we can try to force through that and act like nothing's wrong in the bedroom and in the world. But what needs to happen is reconciliation. And so a time is dedicated to that. Here's what I see this take place. Number one, it happens for a season. It happens for a season. What do we want this to look like? What does this need to be? How long does this need to last? Where do we feel like God's drawing us? Number two, it's agreed upon. It's agreed upon. It is never her will nor mine. It's his. And in unity of the Spirit, we walk in that. And we agree. And the third that we see is that we need to be careful because what Satan chooses to do, what Satan wants to do, is to find a foothold in the marriage so that he can break it apart by taking what is good and replacing it with what is filthy. As we look and as we see and as we understand, so much of what is happening here in the church of Corinth So much of what is happening in the society of Corinth is so much of what is happening in so many churches and in so many marriages and so many societies today. That we have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. And God says, that's not the case. It's my plan. One man, one woman together for a unique purpose to reflect the glory and the goodness of the Lord. And it's my prayer that as you see my marriage, that as we examine our marriage, what is resembled is the serving of Christ to serve the bride. And in areas where I failed, I'm sorry. And that in turn, what we see from that is the bride who loves and follows Christ. And that it's reflected for all the world to see. That it's shared and that he's proclaimed. Stop letting Satan determine where the pendulum is and find what God has called us to. Would you pray with me? Lord, as I look out into this congregation, I see a lot of couples in here, a lot of husbands and wives. Lord, and while I know some, Lord, I don't know all, but you do. Lord, and as they go through, as they battle, as they face, Lord, I pray that they would seek your will for their marriage for your glory, for your name, for your renown. 
Lord, I also see couples in here who are dating, who are engaged. Lord, and the struggle that they face is a difficult one. Lord, I pray that through the strength of the Holy Spirit in them, Lord, that they would not succumb to the sexual temptation that Satan would cast at them. But they would remain strong in their faith. They would be willing to take the desire that you've given them and restrain for that wonderful day where they look at each other and say, I do, and pledge and commit themselves. Lord, also in this room is the single man and the single woman, the single girl and the single boy. Lord, I pray for their purity as well. As their standard as they wait. And if you provide them a spouse, Lord, and we celebrate you. But if what you have for them is singleness, Lord, what they would embrace, what your word tells us, Lord, if we were able to continue on, is the beautiful gift of celibacy. Where they can focus in on you even more fully and, Lord, what you have for them. up real quick I left this out and I'm sorry but if you are a person whether you're married whether you're single and whether you're dating and you've struggled and you've fallen in sexual morality in adultery, in lust, in homosexuality. There's goodness and forgiveness at the cross. And he pours it out and pours it out and pours it out. And another lie that we feel sometimes is that when we've fallen short of God's standard, and we have to live and carry the shame that comes along with it. And Jesus says, I've come to set you free so that we live in hope and glory and goodness. And so if that's you this morning, and you may have some stuff that you need to walk through and we want to walk through that with you, but there's fullness of redemption that's found in Christ. He takes what is old and makes it new. He takes what's dead and makes it alive again. And there's beauty and there's hope in that. Let's go back to the Lord in prayer. God, if there's anyone here and that's what they're struggling with, Lord, I pray that today they find forgiveness and hope through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foot of the cross, to walk in the newness of life, free from shame. Satan, defines them by their sin, Lord, but you define us by Christ. And we live in him alone. Because we've been washed, we've been sanctified, 
and we've been justified. It's in your name we pray, man. Just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to respond. we got prayer encouragers on either side of the auditorium. <laughs> a husband and wife team loving each other for the glory of God. Maybe you want to pray with one of them. Maybe you want to come down front and pray. Maybe you want to pray right where you are. Maybe you want to stand and sing. We just ask that this morning, as you respond, respond as God's leading you. Would you stand as we worship him? Thanks again for listening to the Willow Ridge Church weekly podcast. We hope that you enjoyed listening to this week's message. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or explore additional resources, visit us online at www.willowridgechurch.com or by searching for Willow Ridge Church on Facebook and Instagram.